Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hello and welcome. I'm Shannon Bradley. Tonight we have a full dose of California staples for you. Earthquakes, fine dining, the perfect grass, and a story of a UCSC undergraduate who went on to get her PhD, returned to her alma mater as faculty, and now has a new documentary on a subject near and dear to her heart. Folklorico, the traditional Mexican dance. Folklorico dance is a stylized choreographed dance that is used in theatrical settings. And we'll have more with Olga Nahira Ramirez later in the program. But first, the quakes. As any longtime Californian will tell you, earthquakes are part of the life here. And as we've learned, the more we know about building structures to withstand the shakes, the less damage those quakes will cause. We saw that recently in Chile, where one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded rumbled through there, but did relatively little damage, in great part because the Chilean building codes were developed in collaboration with California experts in seismic design. One of those experts is Jose Restrepo, a structural engineer from UC San Diego. He went to Chile right after the quake and return to share his findings with Rich Wargo. Chile has been growing at a very fast rate for the past 20 years. They have done a lot of new developments, very heavily industrialized these days. So it puts us in an earthquake lab in Chile that actually has a lot of parallels to California. What was the magnitude of the quake, and, and where does it rank again in the historical record of strong motion earthquakes? A moment magnitude 8.8, .8, and it ranks in the first five. The Chilean practice of building is associated with the American practice. So they use pre pretty much the same American codes that we use here. So it's a, it's a great experience for the United States to go and see what happened in there because those buildings are buildings that could have been built here with some differences. So these are new buildings of new construction type and a lot of them. So you get a good cross-direction, almost, almost like a, a good sample. Uh, very good, a very good statistical sample of how buildings behave under this kind of shape. These are mainly reinforced concrete uh, wall buildings mm -hmm. uh, of the kind of buildings that we are beginning to build now in California for residential areas. So they don't have the beams and columns that we tend to have in, in the older buildings, but they do to have long walls like, and they go all the way up. We know um, for a long time that these buildings can be pretty resilient, and they were. These buildings were, had, had never been designed for these very huge demands, yet they took it. Show us some So we see a lot of damage at the base of these walls. These walls are flexing, they are bending, mm -hmm. and obviously they, they develop large strains in, in the concrete and in the steel. So the earthquake came along, it moved the building to one side, the bars stretched, they came back, it, it basically ripped through the concrete because those bars could not stay put, they buckle and rip through the concrete. So. Mm -hmm. It's very notorious, it's very endemic, this kind of failure. So this is the kind of failure you're seeing here, yeah. is the bars being pushed out of the Push concrete. out and buckled and fractured. Actually, we see a lot of bars that have been fractured, which poses a challenge when you're going to repair these buildings. But what is remarkable is that in spite of that, they were okay. The buildings were okay. They, they, everyone got out of the building, and, and many of these buildings can be repaired. You mentioned that there was, in a metropolitan area of 6 million people, only 8 people died. Where, what was that example? In Alto Rio in Concepcion. It's a, it's a multi-story building structure that did collapse. It's the only building that collapsed. 
completely. Is this a newer building, an older building? It's a newer building. Mm -hmm. Probably uh, it's, it's occupied, but it's probably two years old. Mm -hmm. And what was the failure there? We, we, we have seen now from the records very close to where this building is that the demands were far, far from what the code stipulated. Mm -hmm. Probably twice, if not three times. Mm -hmm. So this building came down, but that doesn't explain why the buildings next door did not come down. So despite the, hum the tragedy, the human loss, and the immense amount of damage and the impact this is going to make on, this, is, this has made on the Chilean economy, the, kind of the silver lining is that modern engineering, that the progressive engineering and the research that has been going on in the last decades, decade or so, has made a significant impact. I mean, if you compare the kind of progressive engineering that's being done in Chile and here to older engineering, places like Haiti. The China. lack of engineering in Haiti, they, they basically happen this year that we can have a very good comparison of two earthquakes with strong intensities, one a mega earthquake, the other one is, an, is a large earthquake, and one with devastating effects in the community because basically at about 8%, 8 to 10% of the people die in, in Port Prince. And that's very large. And in Chile, we're talking about 1%. It's very, very low. So it's, it's something that we say, oh, it could have been better in Chile, I wish, but it's tremendous. It's, it's very good progress. It could have been much, much worse. Could you project if that same kind of shaking, that same kind of event were to happen here in California, how we would have fared, from your knowledge of, of, of structures and the way things are built here? In my opinion, is all, all those older structures pre-1970, they will fare not so well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them in San Francisco, a lot of them in, in Los Angeles that have not been retrofitted yet. Uh, for modern buildings, we will experience quite a bit of damage as well in the non-structural elements. Our codes have been tightened lately, but we have a lot of building stocks that have partitions and have very loose overhanging air conditioning units, piping that can come down and interact one another. And it's very important for us to look into this. I think it's important to learn from the Chilean experience to see how we can influence the codes here. We need to see if what we are trying to do with our codes, particularly with the concrete code, is, is what we want as a society as a whole. And it may be that when we have a strong shaking in California, we may see some, some, some needs to, to improve because we have seen some of them already in Chile. Well, thank you very much for taking your time. We appreciate it very thank much. Thank you, Rich. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thanks. From earthquakes to another California specialty, a fresh and consistent menu of good food, good wine, and good beer. Well, the state's vintners, brewers, and food processors know how to make a fine product, but what's challenging in these times is doing so while using fewer precious resources. And that's where UC Davis comes in. Paul Fotenhauer offers us a sneak peek into the new, green, Robert Mondavi Institute for Wine and Food Science. After 100 years of research and education in wine, food, and beer, UC Davis is still searching for perfection. Like the dusty bottles of Cabernet that have grown musty in its decades-old cellar, this premier university is moving ahead quickly into the 21st sustainable century. One question and three quarter to the eight. UC Davis's prestigious wine and food science programs are about to move into new green processing facilities at the Robert Mondavi Institute for Wine and Food Science. This is a beer for sipping with reverence and respect, I think. 
Students who make wine will work alongside those who produce beer, and they will be joined in the same building by others who are working to design new foods in what is the largest food science program in the country. Water is so short in California, and, and winemakers use a lot of water, mostly for cleaning. So we really have to train our students to be thinking about how much water they're using. The students are often the source of new ideas, new product ideas, new product designs that we can start to research in our new facility. And what we're going to do now is um, make sure that our program is dedicated to all the relevant things that are going on in brewing. And those things include environmental issues. These three academic powerhouses are seasoned and yet energized for what the future holds. They are particularly excited about this 34,000 square foot facility that is expected to be completed in the fall. It will include the brewing and food science laboratory and the teaching and research winery. This building is designed to meet Lee Platinum construction standards, the highest granted by the U.S. Green Building Council. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and it has become the hallmark of sustainability in the architecture and construction world. Let's go inside and take a virtual tour. Once inside the doors, a large fermentation room will hold both small and large fermenters that will be used for teaching and research. All will be connected through a wireless control system that will precisely measure temperature. State-of-the-art control systems in all parts of the winery will provide for expanded research capabilities. In addition, a special collection room will store rare and valuable commercial wines. Across the hallway is the new brewery, which will showcase the importance of brewing as a complex, sophisticated process. And finally, the General Foods Processing Plant will handle a broad spectrum of food products, including tomatoes, olives, and more. The processing plant is built to food-grade standards, meaning the foods made here can be eaten. The facility's milk processing lab is specially designed for cheese and other dairy products. Roger Bolton, the Stephen Sinclair Scott Endowed Chair in Enology at UC Davis, has been instrumental in working with senior project manager Julianne Nola on the green systems that this building will contain. This building, uh, with an additional facility that we're planning, aims to be completely self-sustainable in energy from on-site generation, completely self-sustainable in water from rainwater capture, the zero-carbon building, not a carbon-neutral building, and a lead platinum building. And there is no equivalent to that today, and I don't believe in the next five or ten years you will see a building anywhere in the world built that meets those standards. Supported completely by private donations, this $19 million complex is being recognized by industry leaders. Robert Buller, the vice president of sustainability for Kendall Jackson Wines, says the new UC Davis facility provides industry with ways to become even more sustainable. It gives industry a great opportunity to work hand-in-hand -hand with the university to help develop those technologies, to test them in the lab environment, and then to bring that technology out to the commercial environment and see how well it performs and validate it. Bowler says industry must embrace change. I think a lot of people think sustainability is just about the environment and have this image of, of people kind of being tree huggers. Well, you know, sustainability in large part means conserving, not using something. And not using something means you're not paying for something. It's just a smart business. It makes good business sense for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Chico to be sustainable as well. 
For years, it has cut waste by recycling, conserving, and generating on-site electricity with solar panels. Owner Ken Grossman says students who graduate from a sustainable brewing program have an advantage. Well, I mean, we've done a lot of things, and we don't use the term becoming green. We, you know, we use or we view it as something that we need to do as a manufacturer to minimize our consumption of resources and to try to be as efficient as, as we can. Um, but we've done a wide range of things from water conservation, uh, lots of energy conservation projects. Charles Bamford, the Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing, says one major issue facing the industry is making beer more efficiently. The two big issues then are how to make beer last longer in the trade, uh, but also going back to the brewery, how do you make the beer by cutting down on uh, the use of some of the raw materials? For example, a, a well-run brewery is going to use about three, three and a half times more water than ends up in the beer. How can you get that figure even lower? Bamford says he expects commercial breweries to test new ways of making beer right here at UC Davis. Likewise, the $35 million a year California food processing industry is looking to UC Davis for expertise as it relates to efficient, sustainable practices. And UC Davis is, you know, I, I cut my teeth on a lot of the processing and, and oil techniques. Learned a lot when I first got involved in this business approximately six years ago. They're a terrific group down there, and uh, they're an invaluable source of knowledge to us. Well, I think they're setting the standard on, on green building, green construction, with all the students coming through Davis, and really wineries, winemakers from around the world look to Davis, UC Davis, as a leader, a leadership position in terms of innovation. And I think this platinum certified winery will, will prove that, will encourage that. Chancellor Linda Katehi says UC Davis has become the global leader in sustainable related research. The building just behind me is the newest building on our campus and it does really provide a very strong indication of our commitment to sustainability. It's a very symbolic gesture to really indicate the many years of excellent work that we have done in this particular area. The fact that this facility is funded entirely from private support demonstrates a partnership between the industry and the university in attaining the sustainable goals for the future. Paul Fotenauer reporting from Davis. This is the Great Meadow of UC Santa Cruz, a stretch of unirrigated land that separates the campus from the city of Santa Cruz. With an average rainfall here of almost 30 inches a year, it's easy to see how a meadow like this could sustain itself. But most of California has nowhere near that much rain. And with many communities restricting the amount of water we can use, it's getting harder and harder to grow those lush green lawns. So, how to meet market demand for green grass that somehow uses less water? Well, that's what turf scientists at UC Riverside are working on, as we hear now from Carla Yarbrough. California and many parts of the country have its share of dry seasons. Keeping lawns green through the seasons can be challenging and causing us to use lots of water. Dr. James Baird, a turf grass specialist in the Department of Botany and Plant Sciences at UC Riverside, is working on developing a drought-tolerant turf grass that uses less water and stays green year-round. First of all, we're trying to educate uh, the general public about how best to irrigate uh, their lawn. Uh, I think that's still, still something I see on a daily basis is uh, that uh, grass tends to be overwatered and uh, most people think that they need to turn on the irrigation every day and, and that's just not the case even in our, our dry climate. So I think there's an education component with the type of turf grasses that we have. 
But on the other side, uh, we're, we're trying to develop uh, new turf grasses that uh, are, are better able to withstand uh, less water. One of the things that we're trying to uh, get more Californians to consider is to switching from a cool season grass to a warm season uh, species. And essentially these types of grasses are more uh, adapted to warmer conditions. They're, they're more dr inherently drought tolerant, more salt tolerant. And uh, just in doing so, you're, you're looking at saving at least 20% uh, water just by switching the, the particular turf grass species uh, for, you know, from a cool season to a warm season grass. We see the real challenge being the, the color aspect and, and keeping that grass green year round. The other more long-term aspect is from our department side in terms of our genetics program and our genomics program, we're trying to look to developing a warm season turf grass that's able to keep its color year round. Uh, that would be you know, quite an achievement, sort of a, the holy grail of, of, of turf, if you will. Our research at UCR involves hybridizing turf grasses. Um, what that means is we're taking basically two different varieties of turf grass, we're intercrossing those varieties, and we're creating a, a better variety. This is Festuca pretensis. So this is our drought tolerant, stress tolerant, tall fescue variety, or fescue variety. This is Lolium perenne. Um, it's ryegrass. So it's seen mostly in sports complexes. It's seen in overseeding of home lawns and such like that. Um, very well known for its uh, speedy germination. So what we've done in our research is we've taken these two varieties of grass, Festuca pretensis and Lolium perenne, and hybridize them, we've crossed them. The hybrid, basically, over time, initially it does not look like this. It takes many years, we have to go through and select this, so we select traits. Every time a seed is, produ uh, seed is produced, each one of those seeds has its own genetic makeup. So what we're doing with these tubes is, in these tubes it's one giant root zone. So this is one five foot root zone is what this is. And what we're doing to quantify root growth is we're taking these plants, all right, and giving them optimum growing conditions. If you look at this tube right here, you can actually see the roots growing inside the sand. And that's actually what we're measuring. Within five months, you know, cross your fingers, these tubes, the roots will be going all the way down. The Turfgrass Project is located here at the Agricultural Operations Center, which is over 500 acres and about 45 different crops are grown. The manager of AgOps, Steve Cockerham, is also a turf grass specialist, and he says the university is involved in a national turf program. Here at, at uh, UCR, in the Turf Grass Research Project, we participate in a program called the National Turf Evaluation Program, and this is managed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in uh, Beltsville, Maryland. And what they do is they collect new grasses under, in specific species from turf grass breeders uh, from around the United States and in some cases outside the United States. And you take these grasses and put them in different climates and see how they, they perform based on the climate. Another project that Dr. Baird and his team are working on is measuring gas exchange in the turf grass system. Graduate student Aaliyah Mills explains. Here we have an open path infrared gas exchange analyzer or LICOR 7500. What it measures is carbon dioxide and water transpiration as it moves through here, measures it through an infrared beam. The data is processed using this LICOR box and it is recorded on the computer. There we can see where, how carbon dioxide is moving, if it's being transpired or stored, as well as how much water the grass is releasing. 
As Dr. Baird and his team continue searching for the perfect grass, he says the benefits of turf are worth it. You hear so much bad press about turf, but there are, are some important aspects of having the lawn and the landscape around. And so, you know, we're trying to uh, promote that through through improved grasses. They're just, just trying, you know, to educate, again, people on, on the best ways to, to manage what they have already. This is Carla Yarbrough reporting for UC Riverside. We turn now to Olga Nahira Ramirez, a professor of anthropology and filmmaker here at UC Santa Cruz. She grew up in nearby Davenport, one of six children born to Mexican immigrants. Her father died when she was eight. Her mother then had to choose, return with her family to Mexico or stay in California. So my mother felt that we would have more stability here in the United States, and she decided to keep us here. And uh, But of course, we needed a some source of employment. So during the summer, uh, for about three or four years, we went up the coast to uh, pick uh, peas in the fields. And that was quite an experience. <laughs> it, was, it was very foggy and cold in the morning. And then by the afternoon, the sun was really hot and it was uh, not the kind of work that I enjoyed. Um, but we went, a lot of people from Davenport engaged in that work. So it wasn't like it was a lonely experience, but it was a difficult experience. What Olga wanted to do was become a teacher, so she applied and was admitted to Merrill College at UC Santa Cruz. There, she found her passion in Los Mexicas, a folklorico dance group run by UCSC students. The enthusiasm and the pride that they uh, projected was captivating, and I thought, I am signing up, and I just really loved it, but I was really interested in knowing more. Where do we get these dances? Why do they wear these kinds of skirts? What about the kind of music? So I was just fascinated. And I discovered quickly that there wasn't a lot of written information. A lot of the information that I began to discover was through my participation in dance conferences. It was at one of those conferences that she met two people who would play great roles in her life, her future graduate student and collaborator, Russell Rodriguez, and Rafael Zamaripa the acclaimed folklorico choreographer, then visiting from Mexico. When the Maestro Samarripa gave his lecture in this nice auditorium filled with all these students that were just eager to hear what he had to say, he spoke very eloquently, and it was very clear that he had done some primary research on this uh, topic, and I thought, I just think this man is so knowledgeable. And then he told us, and he's very open and very... Uh, welcoming and he said you know and I teach at the University of Guadalajara and you are welcome to come and visit me and I have a school there and I have a company there and when I came home from Pueblo I told my mother I'm going to Guadalajara and I knew better than to ask her if I could go. Olga did go for three years and then pursued a PhD in Texas all the while dancing and studying folklorico. Her work led to a faculty position in anthropology at UC Santa Cruz and an appointment as faculty advisor to Los Mexicas, the dance group that had attracted her as an undergraduate. And when Los Mexicas invited Zamaripa to come watch them perform on campus, Olga approached her former teacher with an idea. Your work is incredible. You've done so much for folklorico dance groups, not only in Mexico, but in the United States. You really fostered this... Um, uh, our need to, to, to know about our culture, and you've been very generous. You've been quite an influence. You should write your story. And he says, Olga, um, we're driving over 17 while we're having this discussion, and he says, Olga, he says, I don't have time. And he says, why don't you do it? 
She agreed, but decided that his story was too visual for a book, so she and Russell Rodriguez spent the next several years making a documentary about the history of Folklorico and the artistic influence of Zamaripa. Can you describe for me the feeling of collaboration or whatever it was when you were down there shooting and interviewing Raphael and working with Olga? And I mean, I imagine that was a pretty heady time for you. You know, of course, it's, it was very nostalgic, you know, because of our connection to Samaripa since the, the, the early 70s, you know, the mid-70s. And to see all his dancers, again, is like... You know, do you remember how skinny we used to be when we danced, you know? And, and these beautiful bodies, you know, just the, the lines, all these beautiful bodies in movement, you know, was, was just um, incredibly inspiring. Mi trabajo en la danza consiste en no deformar las danzas, no deformar los zonas, cuidarlos más celosamente que ningún otro. Pero el marco de referencia está envuelto en una atmósfera teatral, no solamente en una exhibición de bailes. It requires having the training in dance and the whole artistry. And San Maripa is exceptionally talented in that area, which makes the quality of his programs extremely exciting. Cuando usted me pregunta si es importante la danza folclórica en este momento en México, voy a responder muy simple. Es una necesidad de comunicación con los demás. El arte es una comunicación. El arte, danza, pintura, escultura, lo que se llame, es la expresión de un sentimiento. The film premiered on the Santa Cruz campus in March, enticing yet another generation of Los Mexicas to embrace the art and tradition of folklorico dance. On our last day in Santa Cruz, Chancellor George Blumenthal presided over the opening of the new Digital Arts Research Center, as 14 artists in the Digital Arts and New Media Master's program presented their work in an exhibition called Things That Are Possible. And then it's mixed uh, interactively here. I want to thank our friends here at Santa Cruz for helping us all week and you for your support at the University of California. I'm Shannon Bradley. We'll be back in the fall. I hope to see you then. Thank you and good night.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.